Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into the mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, joining you in this moment so we can remember together that real wisdom is dangerous, but it's the direct, unconventional path to success and the good life for all. Dangerous wisdom can heal us and the world at the same time. We're picking up from our last contemplation, in which we considered Aldous Huxley's description of the spirit of the mystical way of knowing, really the philosophical way of knowing. All philosophers are dedicated to the basic spirit of knowing. We could call it the epistemology, that's the theory of knowledge. The wisdom traditions all share an epistemology that has the spirit Huxley expressed. And it involves this recognition that exceptional insight tends to demand exceptional dedication to a holistic philosophy of life, and in particular demands a kind of passionate intensity. And that's what Huxley's collection is about, the perennial philosophy. He's saying that around the world you find this commitment. And we related this to courage as well because we gain so very much as we learn to go to the places that scare us. And not just scare us like I'm scared to give a talk in front of a group, that's important too, but that we might really be afraid of reality, the real nature of what we are and what the world is and what the world needs from us. That can really terrify us, especially if what we suspect the world might need from us involves giving up things that we don't want to give up. And so we don't want to turn towards these things. We don't want to go to the places that scare us in some forceful or aggressive way. We need compassion for ourselves and for the parts of us that fear the vastness and mystery of reality and that may fear what reality may ask of us, what the mystery may demand of us in order to grant us the boons, you know, the special insights and medicines that we need to heal ourselves and the world. And in our last uh, contemplation, we were looking at a, a few passages from Huxley, and he quoted William James. It was a, it's a really nice little quote. Practice may change our theoretical horizon, and this in a twofold way. It may change our horizon in a twofold way. It may lead into new worlds and secure new powers. Knowledge we could never attain, remaining what we are, may be attainable in consequence of higher powers and a higher life, which we may morally achieve. I really love that quote, even though I couldn't find it in James's work. I haven't read everything by James, but I have most of his published writings, including many essays, not just the books. So I gave it a good search, but couldn't find it. If you happen to know where it's from, if you've ever come across that passage in James's work, please do get in touch. But we don't need the quote to be from anyone special. It's not true because William James said it. It reflects a basic teaching of the wisdom traditions and also a crucial discovery of the science of the dominant culture. That's fully in accord with contemporary cutting-edge, the best science we have in the dominant culture. What we know depends on what we are and the processes we use to know things. Evelyn Underhill wrote about this basic idea and how it fails to thrive in our institutions of education. She wrote, The object of education is to bring out the best and highest powers in the thing educated. Do we, in our education, even attempt to bring out the best and highest powers of the spirit as we seek to develop those of body and mind? Now, she's got a few funny rhetorical flourishes there. She says that she refers to a thing, the thing educated, because I think she's saying that we're a what, which isn't a bad way to think, you know. It's not that we're an object. When she's saying thing there, it's that we're not, we go beyond the objective or the subjective. 
So we even go beyond our what we identify with as our personality. So that's why she, I think, didn't say that education is supposed to bring out the best and highest powers in the person educated. And then she uses a kind of convention, which is a kind of relative or, or you know, didactic division of us into a trinity, a body, mind, and soul or spirit. And that's fine, too. And the idea here is that we certainly we have uh, people who become athletes and we have people who become personal trainers and fitness gurus and we have people who become engineers and scientists and so on. And so people who uh, train their body and people who train their mind, some people train both, but do we educate for these deeper realities? So we could just put this in different words. Does our education system actually prepare us to confront reality, to embrace reality and be embraced by reality? Or does it merely prepare us to perpetuate the pattern of insanity of the dominant culture? And we all know this. I worked in the university system, and you don't even have to work there. If you've been through it, you sense how it's a giant career prep that's largely been corporatized, a lot of corporate funding, a lot of nonsense. And it's hilarious, of course, to hear people say, oh, a bunch of liberals in the university. No, it's not not that way at all. It would have been really something if I had met a bunch of uh, uh, Marxists there or people trying to uh, rehabilitate the culture, but it's largely divided off. It's intellectual... And the vast majority of students are just looking to get their degree and move on to their jobs. They don't get much encouragement to reflect on the meaning of their life and really what what their highest powers and potentials might be, ones that they've never been told about. And so I used to find that in my own teaching because even philosophical teachers, you know, as Thoreau said, we are quoting, I quote him all the time, we brought him up in the last contemplation, that there are nowadays professors of philosophy, but not philosophers. And so philosophers turn us toward our soul. And I really love and admire my colleagues in philosophy departments, but they didn't often do that. And many of them would be very dismissive of the kinds of things that Huxley and Underhill are talking about. They might think about them intellectually, but very few of them would have read these sorts of things and taken them very seriously. Same thing with the material that we'll consider today. And so we have to think about that. If we lack preparation to really turn toward reality and see it, because Huxley was saying it takes a special kind of preparation. You don't just get to know things because you want to know them. You have to do the work in order to become the kind of being who can know those things. And that's what the line from James was saying too. James is saying there's our whole horizon moves Once we change what we are, if we stay what we are, then the horizon stays where it is. And we think that we're moving the horizon with science and technology, but we haven't. We haven't fundamentally changed what we are in the ways that the mystics and the shamans and the saints and sages and great teachers and priestesses and witches even of the past have taught. And so if we lack that preparation, how do we ever think we can arrive at reality in as full a sense as we have at least the potential to realize? And we're just trying to say it's unsurprising that we might be pretty ignorant, maybe way more ignorant than we could imagine, because we just haven't gotten anything like the preparation that the wisdom traditions would recommend. Socrates' view of education and the view of education that we see in contemporary, say, U- U.S. politics, contemporary U- U.S. education, the dominant practices there are completely out of alignment with what Socrates would think is important for our education. Now, of course, there are certain things that he might like. Plato had everybody learn geometry in order to study love wisdom. And so he would like probably to see some attempt made to train our minds in in certain intellectual ways, but we're missing the soul almost completely. When we get an unskillful, incomplete, or fragmented and fragmenting education, reality itself will seem to us impossible and maybe even frightening. That's the funny thing. 
So the arbiters of the possible in our culture, the, the business leaders, you know, what Jeff Bezos tells us is possible and realistic and what we should be doing, and what Richard Dawkins and and Sam Harris and other people tell us is possible and realistic and what we should be doing, and the politicians, Trump, Biden, whoever it is, it doesn't matter. What they tell us is possible and realistic is very likely completely out of accord with a deeper reality. Because that reality, to us, seems impossible. And it may frighten us to turn toward it. There's something in us that just doesn't want to look at it, and we're trying to understand that and have some compassion for it and take care of it. Now, our contemplation today, just like our last one, involves looking at things that seem impossible from a more limited perspective. And we're, we're going to look at William James, who wrote about this in an essay. And uh, here's the, the first line of the essay. He's quoting a, f- a friend. He says, The great field for new discoveries, said a scientific friend to me the other day, is always the unclassified residuum. <laughs> James was... He was a very smart guy and had a way with words. And but what he means by the unclassified residuum is the anomalous data, the stuff that doesn't fit our para- paradigm. That's why it's not classified. So he already understood this idea of paradigm before Kuhn, in a way, and so did every philosopher in their own way. And that's not to, to belittle Kuhn. It's just that we can forget a lot of uh, analytic philosophers tend to forget that wisdom is, is older than 1905 or whatever, 1945, who knows when they think it was. But um, James was saying, it's the stuff we seem, it seems like we can't explain and we're tempted to just call it about, we call it noise a lot of times. And here's how he fit, uh, continues. And I'll just, I'll read this passage because it's good. William James is good. He writes, round about the accredited and orderly facts of every science, there ever floats a sort of dust cloud of exceptional observations of occurrences minute and irregular and seldom met with, which it always proves more easy to ignore than to attend to. The ideal of every science is that of a closed and completed system of truth, the charm of most sciences to their more passive disciples consists in their appearing, in fact, to wear just this ideal form. Each one of our various ologies seems to offer a definite head of classification for every possible phenomenon of the sort which it professes to cover. And so far from free is most men's fancy that when a consistent and organized scheme of this sort has once been comprehended and assimilated, a different scheme is unimaginable. No alternative, whether to whole or parts, can any longer be conceived as possible. Phenomena unclassifiable within the system are therefore paradoxical absurdities and must be held untrue. When, moreover, as so often happens, the reports of them are vague and indirect, when they come as mere marvels and oddities rather than as things of serious moment, one neglects or denies them with the best of scientific consciences. Only the born geniuses let themselves be worried and fascinated by those outstanding exceptions and get no peace till they are brought within the fold. The great geniuses are always getting confounded and troubled by insignificant things. Anyone will renovate their science who will steadily look after the irregular phenomena. And when the science is renewed, its new formulas often have more of the voice of the exceptions in them than of what were supposed to be the rules. Okay, I really like that. It's so delightful because it it gets at so much of what we are we have been talking about, and this idea that 
so even if you're committed, again, say, to capitalism, you, you cannot conceive of some other way. There's no other way. And it has to be that human beings are selfish and aggressive, and we couldn't possibly organize on the basis of wisdom and compassion. What nonsense is that? You know, forget what the great sages and saints taught us. But I also love this inversion. And that's part of what we do in some of these contemplations when we consider these anomalous things where instead of having them be pushed to the margin, we bring them to the center with this very spirit in mind, this idea that the thing that had to be untrue or that you had to ignore because it was too weird and it was too much of an exception to the rules and beliefs that you hold fast to, what if it became somehow the center in a way? So its position gets inverted. Instead of being pushed to the margin, it, it gets brought to the center, and the other stuff is pushed to the margin as a kind of exception. And we can appreciate then, what we're appreciating here, really, is how a cosmogram or a mandala works. This is the mandala principle. Our culture, every culture, and the dominant culture does this, our culture gives a blueprint of the cosmos that is simultaneously a blueprint of liberation. That's what it should do. That's what the wisdom traditions do. So those exist in our culture. But if the culture has an unskillful set of ideas about the cosmos and about liberation, then we get stuck with a blueprint that doesn't allow us to fulfill our potential and may lead us to create suffering for ourselves and others. In the worst cases, it becomes a blueprint for the degradation of the world, a blueprint for ongoing bondage and aggression and degradation, rather than liberation and healing and vitalizing the world, our mandala or our cosmogram, our blueprint of reality, which should lead to liberation instead leads to bondage. It should lead to mutual nourishment and healing and so much goodness, and it can lead to a lot of problems. And James invites us to see that these blueprints stick. Once we see them, we can't unsee them, except if a philosophical thunderbolt parts the clouds of our delusion and rouses us from our sleepwalking, kind of gets us out of the entrancement with a bad blueprint of reality. A bad cosmogram, a bad mandala, Okay, now let's continue with James a little bit further. He's he's good. I know I said I wasn't going to read too many things, but I, this passage is, is good. Okay, this one's a little longer. Brace yourself. You're going to be okay. It's William James. He's He was very smart and really interested in uh, interesting things. So here's what he says. No part of the unclassified residuum has usually been treated with a more contemptuous scientific disregard than the mass of phenomena generally called mystical. Physiology will have nothing to do with them. Orthodox psychology turns its back upon them. Medicine sweeps them out, or at most, when in an anecdotal vein, records a few of them as, quote, effects of the imagination, end quote, a phrase of mere dismissal, whose meaning, in this connection, it is impossible to make precise. All the while, however, the phenomena are there, lying broadcast over the surface of history. No matter where you open its pages, you find things recorded under the name of divinations, inspirations, demonical possessions, apparitions, trances, ecstasies, miraculous healings, and productions of disease, and occult powers possessed by peculiar individuals over persons and things in their neighborhood. We suppose that mediumship originated in Rochester, New York, and animal magnetism with Mesmer. But one look behind the pages of official history, in personal memoirs, legal documents, and popular narratives and books of anecdote, and you will find that there never was a time when these things were not reported just as abundantly as now. We college-bred gentry who follow the stream of cosmopolitan culture exclusively, not infrequently stumble upon some old established journal or some voluminous native author whose names are never heard of in our 
circle, but who number their readers by the quarter million. It always gives us a little shock to find this mass of human beings not only living and ignoring us and all our gods, but actually reading and writing and cogitating without ever a thought of our canons and authorities. Well, a public no less large keeps and transmits from generation to generation the traditions and practices of the occult, but academic science cares as little for its beliefs and opinions as you, gentle reader, care for those of the readers of Waverley and the Fireside Companion. To no one type of mind is it given to discern the totality of truth. Something escapes the best of us, not accidentally, but systematically, and because we have a twist. The scientific academic mind and the feminine mystical mind shy from each other's facts just as they fly from each other's temper and spirit. Facts are there only for those who have a mental affinity with them. When once they are indisputably ascertained and admitted, the academic and critical minds are by far the best fitted ones to interpret and discuss them. For surely, to pass from the mystical to scientific speculations is like passing from lunacy to sanity. But on the other hand, if there is anything which human history demonstrates, it is the extreme slowness with which the ordinary academic and critical mind acknowledges facts to exist, which present themselves as wild facts, with no stall or pigeonhole, or as facts which threaten to break up the accepted system. Repugnant as the mystical style of philosophizing may be, especially when self-complacent, there is no sort of doubt that it goes with a gift for meeting with certain kinds of phenomenal experience. The writer of these pages has been forced in the past few years to this admission. So that's a long thing from James. I wanted to give him some space because we're going to look at um, a, a really crazy experience that he had. And he is a, this is a very well-respected psychologist, even today. James is regarded, as a, rightly, as a genius. And he was a good philosopher and psychologist. And he's saying that we, may, we have our own little world around us. And especially, like, if you could imagine a scientist. Scientists are there. They think they're pursuing reality. And then they find out. They walk into a bookstore and see the whole metaphysical section. And they can't believe that, you know, there's all metaphysical books that are outselling Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time or something. And he's astonished, and he thinks it's all nonsense, or whatever it might be, because we in our own world, we th we're having our own reality, and we can't believe there's all these people over here who have, are having a whole different set of experiences. So, like, if we, we w could realize how many people have had uh, telepathic experiences and so on, experiences that are anomalous, it would blow us away. We'd be am amazed. And I love that line where he says that no, to no one type of mind is it given to discern the totality of truth. That's a really, a really interesting, it resonates a lot, and he may have been influenced by indigenous thinkers. I mean, there's an indication that the so-called pragmatists of uh, American, what we call American philosophy, philosophy of Turtle Island, here, they were influenced by indigenous people because indigenous people have that view that the, 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 the mystery gives different insights to different people and also to different cultures, different things that we each have to take care of and share with each other. And so we could collaborate. And it's interesting how James relates an interest in mysticism with scientific genius in that earlier passage, and you can kind of put that together with what he's saying here. <clears throat> it's a little bit weird that he kind of puts the ultimate thing as the academic finally has to get it. You know, there has to be the intellectual or the scholar who finally gets the mystical data and can systematize it in a way that the culture could integrate. And sometimes maybe that is important, you know, in order to systematize our education system around wisdom, love, and beauty, we have to allow the mystic to bring us the visionary information, and we need them to be ethical people too, the pure in heart and poor in spirit. 
Now, it's also, of course, interesting because uh, there, there are famous scientists who exhibit or they wrestle with a mystical impulse, you know. He might have known about Newton. Newton wrote way more about mystical and occult things than he did about. It's almost like calculus and physics was a sideshow, you know. It's like, oh, that's my part-time job, my real gig, you know. <laughs> my real thing is this occult stuff. And he wrote like millions of words, maybe a million words, I don't know, hundreds and thousands of pages. And then, of course, you have uh, the fact that William James, like Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli and Carl Jung, sensed how important these this mystical stuff seems to be, particularly in our historical context. And also, as he, he James is saying, as did Jung, that these things appear across cultures around the world and throughout all history that we know of. And so do we really think it's all a bunch of delusion, or do we think maybe it's somehow quite important and central to what we are? And we need to inquire again into the nature of mind and arrive at real understanding of the relationship between this stuff that we have called mind and the stuff we've called matter. You know, and we don't know how to define very well either one in the dominant culture. And we also, of course, need to rethink what we even mean by science. Science needs to include wisdom. It's almost ridiculous that we think we can raise scientists without teaching them how to be wise and compassionate. Like they can just do the activity of science and that gets you knowledge, totally denying the scientific fact that what we know depends on how we know it. That's not just a philosophical discovery, a discovery of the wisdom traditions, which would not make it less true. But finally, science has begun to verify many things from the wisdom traditions, some often begrudgingly, maybe, at least sometimes begrudgingly, often ignorantly. But we really need our science to have some direct and obvious relationship with wisdom. And so, what we call science needs to direct itself toward furthering the conditions of life and enhancing our capacity for care and for liberation. Science has to become deliberately philosophical, because it, it is philosophical, because you can't do anything without a philosophy of how to do it. So science is already philosophical, but it's not deliberately so. And it also needs to be more mystical and holistic, more ecological and reverent toward nature, compassionate toward nature. And in general, we're just saying it needs to be more skillful and realistic. Science is not skillful and realistic right now. Of course, it does certain things very well. That doesn't mean that it's skillful and realistic. I mean, you know, Charlie Parker was a heroin addict. He, he was incredibly skillful playing the sax, but that doesn't mean that that was part of a holistic and skillful and realistic life. Bill Evans, same way. Bill Evans didn't have to die so young. And why? I mean, he played the piano in spite of the addiction, really. We have to think that. And our scientists are successful at knowing certain things. They have a certain kind of limited capacity, but it's disconnected from the holism of life. And so it's kind of killing us the same way that Bill Evans was killing himself. So our science is killing us. And it seems that taking seriously geniuses like William James or Wolfgang Pauli, Carl Jung, and so many others implies the possibility, at least, that academic scientific thinking as well as artistic and commercial activity and legal activity and all that, needs revisioning on the basis of mystical experience. What a crazy thing to suggest, obviously. In this culture, that we're, you see, we're in the realm of, oh, that's crazy. Well, we're going to have a culture that is or, uh, oriented, at least, toward mystical experience in a fundamental way. But all the wisdom traditions would tell us that there's no way to run the culture without doing that. And this, too, is this crazy suggestion. And James is saying, well, it's, you know, these are things that people would deride. We write them off, sometimes angrily so. You know, there's no way Richard Dawkins is going to listen to this and take it seriously, right? And so this clearly raises some challenges. And the fear we have considered, the fear is playing a major role here. Because our scientists, politicians, economists, business executives, for sure, and our thought, so-called thought leaders, self-help gurus, all, all of them, they don't just suffer from some kind of conceptual block. You know, as, as if they may or may not understand something. Fear itself blocks off possibilities. Entire realms of possibility. 
And so many of us carry a fear of certain kinds of experiences that would qualify as mystical that are documented in the wisdom traditions, and our psyche keeps them at bay or keeps them under control if they begin to emerge. Now, the importance William James senses in mysticism also relates to his work as a psychologist. You know, he's not talking really as a mystic. He might have had a few little experiences here and there, not deeply mystical in the way the wisdom traditions present, you know, the way Aldous Huxley is talking about a a mystic as a person who has really received some visionary and intimate uh, insight into reality which they can then bring back and use that to inform the culture. James didn't seem to have a lot of experiences in that vein. But we're going to share some a really, really intense experience that he did have that was anomalous but not mystical, not in the sense of he really understood something. Um, but it's re- a really important experience and really interesting. But he writes in Varieties of Religious Experience, uh, which actually uh, he, he spoke at, he said, quote, I cannot but think that the most important step forward that has occurred in psychology since I have been a student of that science is the discovery first made in 1886 that in certain subjects, at least, there is not only the consciousness of the ordinary field with its usual center and margin, but an addition thereto in the shape of a set of memories, thoughts, and feelings which are extra-marginal and outside of the primary consciousness altogether, but yet must be classed as conscious facts of some sort, able to reveal their presence by unmistakable signs. I call this the most important step forward because, unlike the other advances which psychology has made, This discovery has revealed to us an entirely unsuspected peculiarity in the constitution of human nature. No other step forward which psychology has made can proffer any such claim as this. Now that's really such such a neat thing that he's suggesting. An entirely unsuspected peculiarity in the constitution of human nature, that is what we what we are, what we're made of, how we're constituted, and this discovery is is saying that it's another way of putting. You could say the discovery of the unconscious or the vastness of the psyche, which we see the wisdom traditions teaching us about all the time, is what the mystic enters into, the discovery of the vastness of the psyche, that it transcends that ordinary center and margin that we experience as our consciousness, as the I. I know what to do. Let's do this. Believe me, this is the only way. I know this, I know that. That I is the center. And James is saying, but this, there's, we have this discovery that has revealed us a, a whole different view of our, what we are. And that's a profound thing. And it simply accords with the wisdom traditions. That's the amazing thing about it. And we could call this liminal awareness, it's, it's crossing, liminal is, uh, is a threshold, so it's crossing a threshold, entering into a gap, a margin, a bardo. And we see this active even today, not only in what is referred to as the parapsychology literature, which is peer-reviewed and rigorous, but even in the once taboo but now acceptable study of advanced meditators who can enter non-ordinary states and tap in to these aspects of our constitution of what we are that we didn't know that we were. So it seems that William James was really onto something, which makes a lot of sense because he was very intelligent and also very open-minded and interested in these anomalous experiences, anomalous data, the residuum as he puts it, and it's unmetabolized by the culture. That's what we could say, too. It's experience unmetabolized by the culture. And that creates a, a, a deficit for us all. It creates a restriction, a limitation for us all when our culture doesn't help us to metabolize these experiences. 
And again, I just want to remind us that we are we consider all this material from William James because it shows how interested he was in in these things and how much he thought about them. And so we might think he was he would be very excited to have one of these anomalous experiences. And it turns out that it's not so simple. In the varieties of religious experience, he he goes on to consider uh, experiences of a wide range of experiences of a mystical character, including a dream experience of his own. And in contemplating it, what we will notice right away is the fear that we have been reflecting on, the fear from our last contemplation, for instance, when we considered Elizabeth Lloyd Mayer's experience, as well as the experience of the client of hers, Grace, and the experience of one of the most successful remote viewers funded by the CIA, who had been, who had seen combat, who had been a combat soldier. And the fear we're talking about seems to go together with whatever energy our system invests in keeping us anchored in a sense of self, keeping the range of mind states or states of consciousness that we can experience, keeping that range of experiences fairly restricted and keeping us in a supra-liminal state rather than a super-liminal state. And remember, liminal means threshold, so it keeps us somehow on this side of a threshold. That's what I mean by supra-liminal. It's on this side of the threshold where we have a sense of control, a sense of a controller, a sense of the known and a sense of the knower, and we keep the, the bardo at bay. We keep the liminal and the mystery at bay. We can't journey into the mystery fully if we can't confront this fear. And confronting fear is part of also how we journey into the mystery. That's why Machig Labron's teacher told her to go to the places that scare you and why it is part of her tradition, part of her, her, the inheritance we received from her. She was one of these great mystics, one of these sages that Aldous Huxley was talking about. She touched that perennial wisdom that he wanted us to become aware of and, and start to soften to and open to, because that's really what our spiritual life is about, softening, opening, and having a great deal of tolerance and inclusiveness for things that at first, from the ego's perspective, seem very difficult or frightening. And that's part of the need we have for the right kind of context. We have to, we, we see, have to see our life and our spiritual practice as an ecology. We need the right kind of context to, so to speak, drop off the body and mind we habitually identify with and enter the mystery of what we are. The dream experience William James shared may not seem strange to us, and maybe that's because it's being told, and we, you know, it's like trying to relate a joke. Sometimes the funniest joke you ever hear a comedian tell, you can't make other people laugh at it because you just had to be there. And we all tell stories like that, where we say, we say oh, well, you just had to be there. It, it's too hard to convey. And so we may hear this dream and think, wow, you know, that doesn't sound too scary. But we have to see if we can use our imagination to put ourselves a little bit in his position without freaking ourselves out, of course. Because if we have this fear, then we know that in part, that's one aspect, is that it might make us hard to imagine how scary it was because we don't want to imagine too, too deeply. But also that we do have to have some compassion for ourselves and realize there are certain things that we have to approach with a lot of delicacy and discernment and that we really want to put ourselves in the kind of ecology where we learn to be able to trust our own mind and to trust ourselves to be in any kind of experience. And that's part of what the wisdom traditions try to do. They try to show us that we, there is a part of us that can't be harmed by these experiences and that our fear simply keeps us from an understanding and a wonderstanding that the soul longs for. It's like very natural to the soul to be in these spaces because it's what we are. And so we'll try our best to see if we can imagine a dream experience that somehow ruptures the ordinary solidity of the self, dispelling our ability to conveniently hide 
behind our own skin. If we can empathize with James here and have some compassion, more than just empathy, but compassion, we might allow our imagination to hint to us at least a little bit what he might have experienced and what that might mean, what that might say about our reality. Now, here's his account. I awoke suddenly from my first sleep. And what he means there, I'll just interrupt, hopefully only this one time, but he means uh, biphasic sleep, what we call biphasic sleep. We're quite used to, many of us are used to sleeping solidly, and maybe for some of us there's a deep biological need to sleep for, if you're lucky, five hours, if you've got the lucky gene, five hours or six hours of sleep at night. And for others of us it might be more, seven or eight or maybe nine. And we do that in one period, but at different times and different places, uh, different people, partly maybe cultural, but again, maybe partly from some, some need in the body, would sleep for a certain period of time, maybe four hours, and then wake up for a little while and sleep again for maybe another four hours. So he, he means that. I awoke suddenly from my first sleep, which appeared to have been very heavy, in the middle of a dream, in thinking, thinking of which I became suddenly confused by the contents of two other dreams that shuffled themselves abruptly in between the parts of the first dream, and of which I couldn't grasp the origin. Whence come these dreams, I asked? They were close to me and fresh, as if I had just dreamed them, and yet they were far away from the first dream. The contents of the three had absolutely no connection. One had a cockney atmosphere. It had happened to someone in London. The other two were American. One involved the trying on of a coat. Was this the dream I seemed to wake from? The other was a sort of nightmare and had to do with soldiers. Each had a wholly distinct emotional atmosphere that made its individuality discontinuous with that of the others. And yet, in a moment, as these three dreams alternately telescoped into and out of each other, and I seemed to myself to have become their common dreamer. They seemed quite as distinctly not to have been dreamed in succession in that one sleep. When, then? Not on a previous night either. When? And which one was the one out of which I had just awakened? I could no longer tell. One was as close to me as the others, and yet they entirely repelled each other, and I thus seemed to belong to three different dream systems at once, no one of which would connect itself either with the others or with my waking life. I began to feel curiously confused and scared. I tried to wake myself up wider, but I seemed already wide awake. Presently, cold shivers of dread ran over me. Am I getting into other people's dreams? Is this a telepathic experience? Or an invasion of a double or triple personality? Or is it a thrombus in a cortical artery and the beginning of a general mental confusion and disorientation which is going on to develop who knows how far? Decidedly, I was losing hold of myself and making acquaintance with a quality of mental distress that I had never known before. Its nearest analog being the sinking, giddying anxiety that one may have when, in the woods, 
one discovers that one is really lost. Most human troubles look towards a terminus. Most fears point in a direction and concentrate towards a climax. Most assaults of the evil one may be met by bracing oneself against something, one's principles, one's courage, one's will, one's pride. But in this experience, all was diffusion from a center and foothold swept away the brace itself disintegrating all the faster as one needed its support more direly. Meanwhile, vivid perception or remembrance of the various dreams kept coming over me in alternation. Whose? 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 Unless I can attach them, I am swept out to sea with no horizon and no bond, getting lost. The idea aroused the creeps again, and with it the fear of again falling asleep and renewing the process. It had begun the previous night, but then the confusion had only gone one step, and had seemed simply curious. This was the second step. Where might I be after a third step had been taken? My teeth chattered at the thought. At the same time, I found myself filled with a new pity toward persons passing into dementia or into invasions of secondary personality. We regard them as simply curious. But what they want in the awful drift of their being out of its customary self is any principle of steadiness to hold on to. We ought to assure them and reassure them that we will stand by them and recognize the true self in them to the end. We ought to let them know that we are with them and not, as too often we must seem to them, a part of the world that but confirms and publishes their deliquescence. The distressing confusion of mind in this experience was the exact opposite of mystical illumination, and equally unmystical was the definiteness of what was perceived. But the exaltation of the sense of relation was mystical. The perplexity all revolved about the fact that the three dreams— both did and did not belong in the most intimate way together. And the sense that reality was being uncovered was mystical in the highest degree. Okay, I know that's a long description, and there's a lot going on in this. Uh, We should at least just, we have the basic picture, right? So he wakes up, He feels that he's in the middle of a dream, but then he remembers two other dreams. None of these dreams seem related. He can't tell which one's the one he just woke up from. They seem so radically different that he's sure they are part of three different dream systems. And so what does that mean? And it's terrifying. We can remember here both the passage from Ortega y Gasset, that we contemplated in the last episode, where he talks about this chaos, where we are lost, says Ortega y Gasset. And James is saying, this is like when you really think to yourself, oh my gosh, I am lost. Have you ever been out in the woods and you suddenly think, oh my goodness, I'm lost? And that's that. there's a real deep panic there because we know we could die. And so it's a very deep existential panic. And here, this is really something that shook him And we can also remember Huxley's suggestions about what mystics, what sages have to go through sometimes, what they have to confront. Without training and preparation, we very may well stumble into an intense experience that feels so confusing that we can't receive any real mystical illumination. So James is kind of stuck in in between. He's saying, 
well, this wasn't mystical in the sense that it was just overwhelming. And it's not like he really got much real information from it. He just got a bunch of scary questions. And this shakeup of his sense of identity and agency and mind. And at the same time, it did have that mystical quality that he himself puts forward as characterizing mystical experiences that you have a sense of higher reality, that something, something really real, realer than what your ordinary sense of reality is, that that reveals itself. And that's common in mystical experiences, that something about that experience seemed more real or seemed somehow to be reality showing itself in a way that we have never experienced before. Now, William James, again, this is a genius, a person with an insightful, perceptive, very sensitive, perceptive, and intelligent mind. And a person who seemed not only open to mystical experience, but but kind of hungry for it. And he did things, you know, like working with nitrous oxide and, you know, laughing gas and trying to, you know, he was essentially experimenting the way Huxley himself would later with mescaline. Some of us may think we can just go out and have a mystical experience, maybe facilitated by medicines or not. Maybe we go on a big meditation retreat, whatever, and we think we can just have these kinds of experiences and we'll understand something important. But what Huxley is telling us and what we can see really with this account from James and other accounts we've considered and which we will consider, we'll consider we're going to go even further out into the realm of the anomalous in our next contemplation, but the the thing to keep in mind is we may not have done the hard work. We may have not engaged in the extensive study especially here on Turtle Island, Americans don't like to study, it seems. I'm surprised sometimes at how little philosophy people understand, even in the traditions in which they're practicing. I have encountered many people who claim to practice Buddhist in the Buddhist tradition, and they really don't know basic things of Buddha's philosophical teachings, because he was a very sophisticated philosopher, incredibly intelligent. And we have to study it would be nice if we if we could just be lazy. But the idea here is, and especially many people who haven't studied very much but think they have had big experiences. You know, the most complicated thing they've read maybe is Ramana Maharshi or, you know, one of the less systematic mystics. And it hasn't cha- challenged their intellect sufficiently and they may very often be satisfying themselves with insights that are wonderful and bring a lot of healing and medicine to them but do not really go to the depths of reality that the great sages went to because they're, they're not ready. And so it's a self-protective mechanism in the soul in many cases that keeps us away from just losing our minds and being in terror because who wants that? And so we, we need to study and we need ethical practice and a lot of training of the mind and heart. This is another thing. We all want shortcuts and so we may turn to some version of mysticism that seems like, well, you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to meditate. You're just, this is it. You just look at awareness or what, however they want to put it. And those teachings have truth in the context of the larger ecology of those traditions. But we think we can just march in and we don't have to be told anything. We don't have to go through any preliminary practices or anything like that. We can We can just be told or we can just be given a medicine or sit down and stare at the sky for three hours, and then we're enlightened. And it just doesn't set us up to be ready for this kind of experience. And it may set us up to have a very nice experience, maybe even very powerful, so that we're swinging from the rooftops and praising how wonderful life is. But if something like this would happen, we would feel just as confused and frightened, and so the soul may keep it at bay. We may have our scarecrows up to frighten away reality. And it can be about anything, really, too, because we panic even if our political identity is threatened or our our ideas about how economies should be run. You know, somebody really challenges our notions of capitalism and said so we have a freakout and we have to act like they're idiots and we deride them or whatever it might be. It's a favorite one of mine. No, I say capitalism a lot, not because I am something like a, a naive socialist, but it's just astounding how limited our imagination is for how we could relate to each other and how willing we are to accept money in, 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 as far as what that term means in this culture, in the dominant culture, which it means a lot of 
a lot of suffering for a lot of beings. It's not that we can't have some medium of exchange, some principle of exchange, but the way the meaning of money in this culture is pretty crazy. But many people seem too afraid to look there. Okay, so we're just asking what we need to do. Can we be serious about how to get ready for these sorts of experiences? And we can see a need for compassion for ourselves, but also it's wonderful that James evokes compassion for others. It's really a lovely thing that these experiences, even if they freak the ego out, when we work with them skillfully, they can bring a lot of compassion for ourselves and others. And we can sense how much we need each other in the face of vast mysteries. And we can sense how badly we need true elders, skillful teachers, genuine mystics, saints, sages, shamans, priestesses, and others who specialize in navigating these kinds of spaces and experiences. It also seems significant that we have ourselves suggested an intimacy between wisdom and madness here. That's what we've touched on. And it seems we have to tread very carefully lest we slip off the razor's edge of wisdom and fall into a a variety, a vast variety of delusions or psychopathies. You know, we can identify with powers that live themselves through us. And the ego can become very grandiose or very paranoid all sorts of delusions could get amplified or maybe even kind of created, sparked. Now, in case anyone out there underestimates the intensity of this experience or its effect on James, he really he says that he was he, this was a real terror. But we can consider a footnote that he places with that account we just read, in which he refers to the experience as involving a kind of devastation. Now, here's what he writes in the footnote. In my own case, the confusion was devastating, terrible, sudden, violent, a state of consciousness unique and unparalleled in my 64 years of the world's experience. Yet it alternated quickly with perfectly rational states, as this record shows. It seems, therefore, merely as if the threshold between the rational and the morbid state had, in my case, been temporarily lowered, and as if similar confusions might be very near the line of possibility in all of us. There are also the suggestions of a telepathic entrance into someone else's dreams, and of a doubling up of personality. In point of fact, I don't know now who had those three dreams, or which one I first woke up from, so quickly did they substitute themselves back and forth for each other discontinuously. Their discontinuity was the pivot of the situation. My sense of it was as vivid and original an experience as anything Hume, a philosophical skeptic, could ask for. And yet they kept telescoping. Then there is the notion that by waking at certain hours we may tap distinct strata of ancient dream memory. So that footnote, I think, makes his whole confession more interesting. And I like that. Also, he's saying maybe there's a dream memory. It's a very Jungian suggestion. Jung would have said, yeah, sure, maybe. Maybe you were touching into the collective unconscious, the collective realm of dream, maybe even that when we dream, maybe the dreams we dream. Could you imagine that if there's an archaeology of dream life where when we dream, we're laying down strata of dream stuff that just abides somewhere here and that sometimes in our dreams, we might go visit or touch those different layers and touch uh, a, a distinct layer of ancient dream memory. That would be a really interesting idea. The point is, he doesn't know. The point is, we don't know. When you have this unclassified residuum, this anomalous experience, it doesn't fit. We don't know how how to metabolize it or how to work with it, so we can't even get all the benefit from it. 
Now, in addition to his own experience, James examines the experience of someone else. Of his reflections on both of these experiences, he concludes in the following way. He says, I have treated the phenomenon under discussion as if it consisted in the uncovering of tracts of consciousness. Is the consciousness already there waiting to be uncovered? And is it a truthful revelation of reality? These are questions on which I do not touch. In the subjects of the experience, the emotion of conviction is always strong and sometimes absolute. The ordinary psychologist disposes of the phenomenon under the conveniently scientific label of a brain seizure, if not rubbish. But we know so little of the noetic value of abnormal mental states of any kind that in my own opinion we had better keep an open mind and collect facts sympathetically for a long time to come. We shall not understand these alterations of consciousness either in this generation or in the next. So we're, we're, we're a, a couple generations potentially uh, past uh, James, depending on how you think about it, maybe two or three. And uh, this notion of uncovering something already there, but beneath the threshold of our habitual supraliminal awareness, pervades the whole of our inquiry together. And it's really also, uh, it's about our culture, questions, deep questions about our culture and what we're not paying attention to that's, re- that's really real. We could say that we don't need modern wisdom or cutting-edge wisdom that we invent out of nothing or try to make out of uh, contemporary facts and figures. We don't need another clever bag of tricks that we present in the manner of cutting-edge science and technology or even this idea of modern wisdom. I think it's kind of silly. But wisdom always has to be alive. The, archetypally, wisdom has a perennial youth. That's why we see figures like Manjushri and others where wisdom, she remains, she has a youthfulness and she's always alive and changing. She's present. It's when we look around us, there's wisdom moment to moment. So the notion of modern wisdom is a waste of words and it it, it betrays a misunderstanding of what wisdom is. And it also betrays a, a misunderstanding of what the wisdom traditions are, what those old teachings are about. Those old teachings are about the present moment. And we have to understand that without getting ourselves confused. We need a lot of discernment. In general, we need insights that deserve the name wisdom because of how they touch the obvious that has somehow become lost. Wisdom is the precondition for anything that deserves to be thought of as involving knowing rather than ignorance. What we call knowledge in the dominant culture is typically rooted in ignorance. It's usually ignorance that's nothing more than a set of techniques, a bag of tricks, a program of cleverness, a self-help catastrophe, all for the sake of narrow human purposes and not for the sake of mutual healing and liberation of self and world. Uh, Carl Jung gets at the already there quality that James alludes to and that we're referring to in our thoughts here. In the following passage, he says, What if there was a living agency beyond our everyday human world, something even more purposeful than electrons? Do we delude ourselves in thinking that we possess and control our own psyches? And is what science calls the psyche not just a question mark, arbitrarily confined within the skull, but rather a door that opens upon the human world from a world beyond, allowing unknown and mysterious powers to act upon human beings and carry them on the wings of the night to a more than personal destiny. That's really an interesting idea. We think the psyche is in the brain. And he's saying, what if the psyche is a door, a gateway? 
Lived by powers we pretend to understand, the ego tries to maintain an illusion of boundedness and control. Nevertheless, transdermal, we could say, that is transcending the skin, and in general non-cranial, transcending the skull, transdermal and non-cranial factors seem real and seem to influence our lives and our loves. In other words, our interwovenness into the very fabric of the cosmos seems more mysterious and wondrous than our minds can imagine. That is, as long as we let our minds remain trapped in the pattern of insanity the dominant culture has caught us all up in. Resisting the insanities of the dominant culture and joining together in the common ground of our highest values and our interdependence with each other and the whole community of life That means taking a stand on behalf of our reverence for the mystery of our cosmos, the mystery that we all are, and taking steps toward greater intimacy with that mystery and with each other. We now face a situation in which many of us fear to lose what the majority of us have so far feared to love and truly understand. If you have questions, reflections, or stories of the magical and the mysterious and the wise and the wonderful, the compassionate and the courageous, get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org and we might bring some of those questions and comments into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.